Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. Big news. Vegas won the cup. Let's move on to Oilers things now. It's <laughs> <laughs> finally over. Uh, I, I always have a hard time watching the playoffs once the Oilers are out. And this year in particular, it was bitter. Because I really do think the Oilers were the better team. In terms of um, talent, better players. And I think they got outcoached and outgoalied and some bad puck luck. And those three things combined. And Vegas got by them. But I find it very frustrating. The, the outgoalied thing will happen. But the outcoached and the puck luck thing is drives me a little bit crazy because if you just you just get a few bounces and you win, and the, the coaching yeah, strategy many bounces away. For yeah, sure, the coaching strategy was forcing big, a game seven. Yeah, sorry, I was talking over you there. Um, what did you think of Vegas winning? Well, I mean, I'm not totally thrilled. Uh, uh, I'm glad it took them six years so the Oilers can still claim the record of uh, uh, modern era expansion teams winning the cup in five years. And of course, some will say it wasn't an expansion team, it was a merger, and that is a moot point. But Oilers came in the NHL in 79, and Peter Pockington promised in November of 79 they'd win the cup within five years. And wouldn't you know it, they did it. It's one of the most outrageous, outlandish predictions ever that actually came to pass. And now the Vegas owner, apparently he told Bettman that he would win the cup in six years. So he sets his sights a little lower, but uh, uh, bang on. And uh, uh, Bettman sure seemed happy that they won it. Let's uh, just say that. There was a, a few, Batman, a few really like that things that kind of worked out in Vegas' favor over the course of all of this, including yet another salary cap boondoggle and... Uh, there was a lot of people from a lot of different towns, not just Edmonton, that were uh, uh, questioning some of the officials' uh, decisions right to the end, like the goal last night that wasn't shot into the net until after the whistle went, but somehow it was allowed to count. And we've uh, we've seen perfectly good goals not counted for less good reasons than that. But anyway, it's uh, spilled milk now. They got it. They were the best team. And they... Uh, had a great coach in Bruce Cassidy. I think that made a big, big difference to them from the team that missed the playoffs last year. And they were able to uh, uh, aggressively change the roster, which is one thing that they've done very differently from a lot of teams, not just the Edmonton Oilers, in terms of the way that they unceremoniously dispatched guys like Marc-Andre Fleury or Max Pacioretty. Just be gone. We want the latest hot free agent here, whether it's Petrangelo or whether it's Psycho in the trade. Or, Robin Lehner. Or Mark Stone or, yeah, all those guys came in by, you know, in high profile transactions. And for a while there, I'm thinking they're just spinning their wheels, just spitting out guys that are just as good as the guys they're bringing in. But clearly it's uh, uh, paid off for them. And, you know, the- they, they had four lines deep, Dave, and three defense pair and very few injuries. Uh, other than the net, and the one in net actually, or the two in net actually worked out for them because I think the guy who wound up playing the best only got his chance because the other guys were hurt. Every goalie thrived, 
could have been the goaltending coach, probably partly the goaltending coach. Sean Burke gets a lot of props, but Bruce, their yeah, system. He's good. He's good. We've talked about their system. It limits the highest quality scoring chances against the goalie. He's protected by two quality defensemen. I think three acquisitions to that team made a huge difference to that team in recent years. The three players who stood out, I mean, aside from their core existing core, obviously Jack Eichel. I mean, that's a franchise center. Um, in his, they took a risk because he was injured, though. Yes. And the risk Eichel's. paid off. He was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Alex Martinez is the best defensive defenseman I've seen in the NHL this year. He played that system, or either that or that system was tailor-made to his strengths. Bruce, he against the orders, he hardly made a mistake on a grade-A shot against. He was just unbelievably good. He was always in position. He won almost all of his battles. And it just struck me how a, a smart defenseman in the right system can dominate a game. And this is the challenge for the Oilers coaches to get the right system for the defensemen they have, like Ekholm, Cece, Nurse, Deharney, all great big guys, superb in the slot, I believe, or could be in the right system. Mm-hmm. So the third guy is Cassidy, the coach, who developed that. Right. And um, I just can't say enough about the work that he did. And, and there was a, I can't remember the call, recall the name of the Vegas podcaster who, heading into the um, Oilers series, said that the difference was going to be goaltending and the coaching, and the Vegas had it over the Oilers in both categories. And I kind of, I have to admit, scoffed a little bit at both notions, but I'm not scoffing now. That that uh, podcaster, broadcaster was dead right. Mm-hmm. He um, he was the be- most astute um, analyst uh, out of Las Vegas, and he just he's just a guy, um, a longtime fan who runs a hockey memorabilia store in, in mm-hmm. Vegas, trading cards. Man, did he know what he was talking about, though. And, and it wasn't just that example. There was a number of things that he talked about where he just showed a really high mm-hmm. knowledge of hockey. So maybe I'll try to get his name by the end of this podcast. But um, Cassidy did the job. Naming the goaltending when your number one's been out all year and your your new number one is knocked out and out for the entire playoffs. Uh, it's a gutsy call. And then when their number three guy, Laurent Brassois, got knocked out of the playoffs in the Edmonton series and they wound up going with a number four, Aiden Hill, you think they're probably on the ropes by now. And that was a major turning point in their favor. And that Hill came in and he was red hot the whole rest of the way, really. And, you know, they had the they had the magic formula. And, they uh, you know, they got some breaks along the way. And, you know, they had, for instance, before the Stanley Cup finals, they got four days of rest, even though that meant that Florida had to rest 10 days. And that took me right back to 06 when Oilers playing Carolina. And the Oilers had to wait two more days so Carolina could recover from Game 7. And it was, a you know, one of those bones of contention that comes up from time to time. But anyway, the, the, the uh, uh, tumblers kept dropping in uh, the right places for Vegas. And, and clearly by the end, I mean, they broke the record of the greatest team of all time, 1985 Stanley Cup finals for scoring nine goals in a Stanley Cup clinching game, beating the 85 Oilers record of eight. So not not bad when you're breaking goal scoring records by the Edmonton Oilers of the 1980s. But they were pounding them in all playoffs, David. I haven't got the final numbers yet. But every goalie that faced Vegas, uh, starting goalie that faced Vegas from Connor Hellebuck to Stu Skinner to uh, Jake Ottinger, 
to uh, Sergei Bobrovsky, who was a bona fide Con Smythe candidate ending this series, and Vegas shredded those guys four out of four. They were shooting like 12% or more against all of them. The guys were in the 880s, 870s, you know, save percentage, and whatever Vegas was doing, it, w- it worked against more than just the Oilers. In fact, the Oilers came closer probably than anyone to beating them. The uh, Vegas podcaster who said this was um, Chris Gowlick of the Locked On VGK podcast. And heading into the series against the Oilers, he said the following, give me the best coach and give me the best goaltending, and then we'll go from there and try to figure things out. We've got, we've got the notch in those two categories. Both those check marks go to Vegas. Wow. And he was dead right. All right. Uh, Bruce, it's a sad day for Oilers fans uh, on a number of counts, and yeah. and the it's just and they're they're both serious in their own way. So first of all, uh, Noah Philp, um, Daniel Nugent Bowman interviewed Ken Holland, and Ken Holland has said that that he, that Philp um, needs to take this season off, and um, that he's uh, heading in his retirement papers. It sounds like essentially. Wow. And um, he needs to be in Calgary with his friends and family. So we don't know um, the circumstances for sure of what's going on here. It sounds um, like someone in need of support. And and I think all what we can say is this. This is a really, he was a, Philip is 25. He is a really good prospect right now. He might have made the orders as a centerman yes. on the fourth line this coming season. He, he had just a fantastic season as it went along in Bakersfield. Yes. He's 6'3", 200 pounds. Um, just right shot the orders were gonna, right shots and the orders were going to offer him a contract for sure. And, They're still going um, to qualify him because yeah. they qualify him. They keep his rights if he decides that his crisis is over to return to the game at some future point. Uh, the orders will retain their rights by by having qualified him. Um, but it's uh, it's a bitter blow and it's uh, 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 as I say we're not sure what the problem is. We've heard a couple of rumors that are. Are, are not good, but actually not relating to the, the player himself, but uh, those uh, who surround him. But uh, that's that's all I'm prepared to say because all I heard was a, you know, a well-founded but rumor. So yeah, anyway, we, he's we kids in a tough place, and we wish him well. That's all I'm going to say. And and good luck to him in the future. You know, he's got his whole life ahead of him. So good luck to him. And and uh, you know, my own hope as an Oilers fan and. And he's pursued hockey as a dream his whole life. And I hope that he can, I hope he actually comes back one day and, and picks it up again. Uh, Bruce, the other the other really tough news is TSN 1260 went off the air today. Um, sports radio station. I mean, I've been listening to TS to 1260. It used to be 1260 CFRN. It used to be the team 1260 and, and then yeah, TSN bought it. I grew up listening to 1260 and Rod Phillips. And um, it was now it's, you know, there's lots of really popular um, hosts, including uh, our good friend, Alan Mitchell. You've been on that show for for years, Bruce. At least 10 years. I can't even keep count of it, David. All I know is I woke up this morning uh, thinking I'm going to be ready for my radio interview at 11 o'clock. And I listened to Dustin Nielsen interview Ryan Rashog at 8.30, like he always has, the morning mandate, uh, one of their popular features every day. And then at 9 o'clock, 
uh, I heard tell, uh, well, I saw Jason Greger's tweet. I couldn't believe it. So I turned on the radio and all it was playing was uh, on a little loop, some radio, you know, some hold music. And then uh, this little announcement saying that they've uh, gone off the air and that it was inevitable and so on. And thanks to this and that and the other. But uh, uh, this was Bell Media. Uh, pulling the plug as they've done previously on three of the other TSN radio stations. Today I understand it was six radio stations that got axed and various other 1,300 jobs or something, and this from a corporation that pulled down a record $2.9 billion profit last year. So let that sink in, but apparently this little branch, you know, every line item that doesn't make money gets under scrutiny in these days because, damn it, we want to get up to $3.0 billion next year. Or 2.91 or whatever, you know. I mean, it's it's frustrating in the extreme. There are a lot of fans, sports fans, and fans of TSN 1260, and fans and friends of the people who've lost their job today who are quite beside ourselves uh, in terms of uh, the loss. I've been listening to that station just about every day, every weekday for 15 years, Dave, and I get a lot of my information from there. I used to. And there are a lot of other people. I mean, I read one guy that said his stage his car's been set to 1260 for 15 years, and he doesn't know how to change the station. So what's he going to do? So, anyways, uh, my uh, I'm sad to lose my little 15 minute soapbox every week, but I'm very sad for for friends and and uh, acquaintances uh, that work for the station, like my friend Alan Lowtide Mitchell and Dave Jameson. Dustin Nielsen, Lieutenant Eric, you know, the producers that were a big, big part of the shows and the uh, uh, the toasts, uh, the hosts as well in terms of, uh, you know, Gregor and, and uh, Strudwick that made the team in the afternoon. All these people are looking for different platforms or a different line of work now. And I think some of these guys, you know, career long radio guys like um, media guys like uh, Low Tide and Jameson, the show I was on. I mean, these are guys that are, you know, in the range of 60 years old, and all of a sudden, whoop, their job's gone. Now what? And both dealing with personal tragedy in their life at this particular time, just to make it that much tougher. Did they? I don't follow the Elks. Do they broadcast the Elks games on the radio? It's the same as hockey. Ched's got the games, and TSN 1260 did most oh. of the coverage throughout okay. the week. I see. And and but Ched has the actual broadcast of the game, and TSN. I think they had a pregame and postgame for the Elks, just like they do did for the Oilers. Even as in between times, they didn't cover the the hockey game, but they had pre and post games, lots of call and lots of of listener interaction, and it's all up in smoke as of today. Yeah. What, there's one difference now, and this is one of the reasons the stations failed, is there's mm-hmm. competitions from other platforms yes. online. So I suspect that a lot of these people, um, I mean, Alan Mitchell's already working for The Athletic and doing mm-hmm. outstanding work there. Um, I suspect we're going to see some podcasts, new podcasts pop up here and mm-hmm. um, new online content. And a lot of the people... Um, uh, who are at the front end of the shows are going right. to continue to work. There's a lot of people perhaps at the back end, not so lucky though, because uh, podcasts and blogs tend to be done on a shoestring and um, with little technical support. 
as mm-hmm. you might gather watching this podcast. And <laughs> little? So no, none. Upgrade. 260 or 260 <laughs> plus guys trying to figure out the internet. Adventures yeah. in internetology. Mm-hmm. So yeah. good luck to them all. Good, really good luck to them all. And I'm, I'm sure some of them are going to land on their feet and I'm sure some of them are going to thrive maybe in a way they never expected in, in mm-hmm. unexpected ways. And uh, that's what I'm hoping to see. Well, my son reminds that, and I saw this just recently, that actual uh, new vehicles are going to be produced without AM radio capabilities going forward. So, so have to AM is going the way of the dodo bird. Uh, period. And, you know, that was just one of the leading edge things. I mean, a lot of people listen to it in their car. Well, apparently they're not going to uh, have that option anymore. So more and more of the push will be to FM or to, you know, uh, satellite radio, certainly. And maybe they'll have some way to interact with, um, you know, podcasts and other platforms as well. But uh, it's a sad day. There's no no, uh, getting past that. I'm first they took away about it yeah first they took away our cd players mm-hmm. or our yeah. cassette players then yeah. they took away our cd players then mm-hmm. they took away our key ignition and then <laughs> next is the am radio what's <laughs> next all right um bruce let's move on uh so daniel nugent bowman of one of these new in- internet sites the athletic which also laid off a bunch of people last week um or this week um he did an interview with um, Ken Holland and uh, lots. Uh, I thought it was actually a really interesting interview in that I don't think I've ever seen Holland kind of the kind of the tough hockey um, side of him come out um, more than in this interview. Just just how hard headed he is. And um yeah, it just really, you know, so the, the first example I'll go with is his, um, his interview with uh, about when he's asked about Steve uh, Steos. And, um, you know, there's probably lots of Oiler, some Oiler fans wringing their hands like we got to keep Steve Steos like we just got to do this and he might go to Ottawa and, you know, move on to a different job and we're going to lose this bright young management guy. <laughs> And uh, Ken's Holland's comment was basically, you know, case sera And he says, quote, we'll see what the future brings. I've never really worried about that. There are lots of good people in the business. People move around. They come and they go, unquote. So now this, yeah. as, a, as a negotiating position with Steve Stales and as a public position, I think that's a, the perfect thing to say. You, you know, if they're keen, let's say they're let's say they're actually super keen to keep Steve Stales, you know, this that that would then be a negotiation, and um, you don't want to be so desperate uh, in public to keep the guy. But I also do think, on a certain level, there's a certain amount of truth to this. There are lots of really good people in the world, and organizations lose people all the time, and they mm-hmm. replace them. And the organizations, if they're if they're generally well run, um, they go they go on. Now the argument will be from many fans. Well, the Oilers aren't generally well run. It's a it's a crap show with the Oilers, and it's started. You know, it's it's been that way forever since the internet came in existence, and we could all voice our opinion. It's been that way. Uh, so, but but I would say 
I don't really actually think it is that way in a number of aspects of the Oilers organization. They they do seem to have some good people in Keith Gretzky and Brad Holland. And, um, you know, they, they, and Jay Woodcroft and, and I think in Ken Holland um, at the top. Now, could they add more good people? And was I glad, to, was I glad to see Stales go there? Yeah, I'm glad he's there and I hope he stays. But I do think um, two things. If you're going to hire someone to replace Ken Holland, have a full search in public job search, which they've never done. And second, if they did that, they'll get some really good candidates. Mm -hmm. So those two things. Your take. Yeah, Uh, no argument, really. And I mean, my my take being an Oilers fan of long memory and of a certain mindset remembers the Oilers getting dinged with two draft choices First, picking up uh, Peter Chiarelli and Todd McClellan after they've been cast aside from the previous clubs for uh, what they called executive compensation. And the Oilers lost a second and a third round pick because of that. The whole idea of the executive compensation uh, idea came with the idea of, of rewarding teams who developed young executives that then went elsewhere. For instance, when Steve Eisenman went from Detroit to Tampa, Todd, Detroit got nothing. And that was kind of, you know, saying, well, we developed this guy for another organization. They just came in and took him. That can't be. Well, this is what the orders are now doing with Steve Steos. And wouldn't you know that executive compensation uh, uh, boondoggle, as I called it at the time, lasted all of nine months. And two teams got screwed out of two draft picks each, Edmonton Oilers and Ottawa Senators, which just happens to be the two teams being named in this Steve Steos uh, situation. So anyway, it's just it's just bad timing and bad luck. But boy, the Oilers seem to get a lot of that, where this stupid policy was in place for nine months and the Oilers paid twice over for it. And now they're she was they on the got, other foot. And the rule doesn't exist anymore. Oh, they should have well. got compensatory picks after they got rid of that rule. You know, yeah. almost. It was like, anyway. All right, Bruce. So the Oilers, he, um, Nugent Bowman was also asking him about, um, you know, maybe bringing in another player. Mm-hmm. And, um, he, you know, Ken Holland uh, is... Right now, there's a rumor, for instance, that Travis Konechny might come to the Oilers. And Travis Konechny um, is a top-scoring winger. He um, he scored, uh, he's like 40th, 41st, something like that overall for even strength scoring. Five-on-five five scoring for a forward last season. The guy can score. But Holland's already said a couple of weeks ago on Stauffer's show, no one's... We're, you know, can you bring in a player? No, unless he's going to make peanuts. So this time, Nugent Bowman just asked him directly, can you shoehorn in another high-priced player under the salary cap? And Ken Holland's answer was, quote, no chance, unquote. So there is, he's, he's telling, <laughs> so there's lots of fans who are getting their hopes up about mm-hmm. Konechny. And you can make an argument for it. No. Listen, there's all kinds of arguments you can make for Konechny or Colton Pareko or who, whoever you're thinking, right? Whoever, which, whichever, like, and it's always enticing to think about it. It's fun yeah. to think about these things. It's fun to debate it. You look at the mm-hmm. player, you think where he could fit and, and people get their, but this is, Bruce, they have $6 million. Yeah. 
They've got to sign six more players, and one of them's Evan Bouchard, who's going to get and McLeod, who are going to get more than a million dollars each. This is not. I could get six million just the two of them. So Holland is also saying that he's not prepared to just overturn his lineup. Now, there's some people who are probably thinking, we've got to be like Las Vegas, the hard, cold-eyed alligator blood, um, death stare, Vegas management, and just axe this guy and axe that guy and move along. Well, maybe uh, these guys all have no movement, no trade clauses in Edmonton as well. I don't know. I Like... They traded for a couple of guys. Pacioretty, I don't know what his situation was when, when they got rid of him. If he agreed to get moved out or if he had a no They moved closet. him for basically free. They essentially gave him to Carolina Hurricanes just to get rid of the cap hit. And Carolina took all of the cap hit and they took the player and he blew out his Achilles twice this year and it wound up being not much help to Carolina. And then uh, uh, Vegas had made cap space that made some of their other moves possible. So Well, you know, they, they were aggressive. They got Eichel. They yep. gave up a lot for Eichel. Yep. They got um, Peter Angelo. They gave yep. up uh, they gave up players for Peter, useful players he, for Peter he was, Angelo. He was a, actually, he was a free agent. Oh, that was free agent. That's right. But they yeah. gave up a, a ton of money. And they, uh, you know, they also picked up Mark Stone. They gave up a, a big uh, 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 parcel of players, prospects, picks for, for uh, Stone, uh, and they got their captain. And and Ken Holland is such a coward that he brought in that he the only things he ever done is brought in Zach Hyman, Matthias Ekholm, and Evander Kane with the cap hardly going up. I mean, Ken Holland has made some really gutsy moves. The Evander Kane signing was a super gutsy move. It was really unpopular. People were mm-hmm. irate about that, Bruce. There was people mm-hmm. who were profoundly offended by that. Yes, yeah, no, I understand. And most people, most GMs wouldn't have done that move. They didn't. That's why there was no market for mm-hmm. King. So anyway, I just, like, I know there's this, right now, this narrative about how hard-edged the Vegas management team is. And there's some truth to that. Like, they have made a lot of bold moves. But I don't know. You can only make so many. And they brought in they brought in Matthias. They found a way to bring in Matthias Eckholm this yep. year. I'm kind of, yeah. I'm not in the camp. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not in the camp that's, that, thinks Vegas is all that different than other management teams in the NHL and that um, they're all inferior, drastically inferior to this, the Vegas brain trust. And uh, I'm not in the camp that thinks Ken Holland's been sitting on his hands for, for three or four years. Definitely not. So. This business about uh, uh, Holland being uh, uncreative, uh, I don't think he's gotten enough, uh, enough, kudos for some of the some of the cap related transactions he made we talked about that in the past so i'll just leave it there but uh uh vegas i mean it's a very difficult comparison because vegas has a background different from every other team in the nhl except seattle who's four years behind them and that is that they joined the league just recently and by far, by far, the most generous terms to an expansion team that we've ever seen, going back to 1967, no expansion team got uh, got a deal like Vegas did. And they did great work. They had a great expansion draft. They had an even greater uh, 
set of transactions around the trans, uh, expansion draft where they were able to acquire other assets by making promises to teams like what they told uh, Florida okay we won't we won't pick Alex Petrovich off you in the expansion draft we'll pick Jonathan Marchesso instead and oh yeah you're going to send us Riley Smith well guess what those two guys are still on the team six years later that they got it basically through the expansion draft process they got William Carlson in that process they got Shea Theodore in a trade to protect Anaheim from losing I think it was Clayton Stoner I mean they they just absolutely shafted a few teams along the way, and they they developed uh, a good sort of underlying roster. But the other thing that came out of this, and this is sort of the lesser um, publicized aspect, and this was Seattle too and uh, Vegas. After their first year, not only did they have a decent core of players that they picked off other teams lists, you know, like the tenth, eleventh best players on all these teams, and all the extra guys, but they had oodles of cap space and cap space is the most valuable asset there is in the nhl in these days and it's not even particularly close and in their second year vegas basically went out and they bought an entire second line of paul stastny between max pacioretty and mark stone and it was like a 20 million dollar line of players that were fully established in fact their contracts have been signed basically elsewhere and the uh uh, Golden Knights were able to bring those guys in with the cap space to augment the good set of players they had. And let's face it, the management did a good, good job in uh, uh, <clears throat> in the first stage. And then they they built on that and they've made some gutsy moves and they've made some unpopular moves like getting rid of Marc-Andre Fleury for basically they gave him away too just to get rid of his salary. And it all, everything came up aces for them in uh, 2023. So it's, but it's, 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 you know how many draft picks, Vegas draft picks they have who are on the team? One, Nicholas Haig, their number six defenseman that they picked in the draft. And every other guy on their team, they got by some other method. He's a pretty good player, that guy. He's a pretty good say. player, but I mean, you look at Edmonton's list of draft choices, for instance. You got uh, McDavid, Drysdale, Nugent Hopkins, Nurse, uh, Yamamoto, Bouchard, Broberg, you know, that's McLeod, Skinner. Like, you know, they built a lot of the team through the draft, and the expansion team just went a whole different route. So it's very difficult to, to compare. Didn't we and, hear all those years that that's the way to go is to build through the draft and have I've a farm system. I've said it myself many times. And, yeah, and now it's suddenly, no, you have to be cold-eyed and uh, making moves well, all the time. It's, it's a bit of fair to compare, though, to, to Vegas because their, their circumstances are so different. It is. And cap space, I think it became even more of a premium after COVID hit and yes. the cap didn't go up because of yes. that. Like everything yes. stayed still for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And it's still staying still. And so that was even extended that advantage of having that extra cap space initially. Um, he, he, came, uh, he came off as Holland is fairly non-committal on Costin and Bouchard saying, basically, yeah, we're talking to him. We've given some offers. We've got to work, work things out. Um, yeah. But he, I thought it was interesting what he said about um, buyouts. Let me just find this section of the interview. Um, uh, let me go. Uh, 
He was asked, Nugent Bowman asked him, given your limited cap space, how would you like to approach free agency? And he said, Holland says, quote, well, if you look at uh, our team, there are five big forwards in the top six. Obviously, Yamamoto's played a lot of time up in there. I do know that we have to move a player out just to get cap compliant. So he was not asked directly about Kater Yamamoto. He was asked a question about getting cap space for free agency and whose name pops out of his mouth. I mean, this is no secret. We've all been talking about this for some time, but if you were looking for any kind of, if you were like doing witness statement analysis and trying to determine who's he going to move out, well, I think we just got a rather large tell there. And, um, and and I don't think just a small percentage of fans would disagree at this point. The only question is, can they move them out and get a pick of some sort? Or are they going to have to just eat it, buy them out? It's obviously preferable to get a draft pick. Yep. And I'm, I, I think there's a possibility they'll be able to get a draft pick. Um, there's lots of teams, bottom feeders who need to get to the floor. And he's not a bad player for a bottom feeder team to take a, a chance on. And um, like Montreal, I don't know what Montreal's caps. Montreal spends a lot of money. Chicago, Arizona. guys already. Yeah, but Chicago, Arizona. Like I could see one of those teams. And you just need, you know, you just need a couple teams that are interested. And then that changes it from a buyout to a, you get a draft pick for the player. So I think that's going to happen. Yeah, well, what they don't want to do is be getting any salary back in that trade. I mean, they got to be trading to offload salary because they're they're they are that stuck uh they have uh most of last year's high priced help including yamamoto uh under contract going forward in fact there's not a single expiring contract worth more than 1.25 million dollars and those players I mean, the best you can do is save 500 grand if you replace them with an NHL minimum guy. Well, they, they need more than 500 grand, right? They need 1.85 million just to pay Stuart Skinner's raise that's already been negotiated. They're probably going to need 2 uh, million or more to pay Evan Bouchard's raise. They're probably going to have to pay a uh, better part of a million for Ryan McLeod's raise. And that's without adding any guys. That's just bringing the same guys back for higher money. And he's taken one step in the positive direction, bringing back Derek Ryan for 900000 That was $1.25 million. So there's some marginal cap savings. But you save $350,000, you are going to have to save that quite a few times to pay for Evan Bouchard's raise, or, or Skinner's for that matter. They're just they're dealing in the margins of the, of the roster where player out, player in means, you know, changes in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but nothing in the millions. And they're going to need millions. Someone's got to go going to have to go and it might even be two guys that have to go out of the uh three three million dollar club because all the other guys have no movement clauses yeah i think you could trade either cc well you could trade either cc kulak or fogel and get a draft pick back mm-hmm. i think they're all um de- decent to good hockey players mm-hmm. um kulak might have the most value based on his playoffs and a three-year deal, like someone might think he's top four for their team for the next three years, like Chicago, for instance. Like they think, ah, we need to have some steady players around Connor Bedard. He'd be really good. Or CeCe would work for them. Um, I just don't see Holland moving either of them because he likes them. So this is, in some ways, the most interesting part was um, Ken Holland's speculations about Philip Broberg. And he just seems really torn. Um, so yeah. he, uh, here's the quotes. 
quote, when you've got a Darnell Nurse on the left side and at Coleman Kulak, they're pros, it's a dilemma. Um, I don't really have an answer for you right now on Broberg. That's what I've got to sort out in the next couple of weeks. But being in the seven hole, playing five minutes, I don't think that's doing much for his development and growth as a player. He needs to play 15 to 20 minutes. Then he said, I feel really good about our left side D. Uh, He, Broberg, can play right. I think he's most comfortable on left. Broberg's development and growth weighs on my mind on a regular basis. So it sounds like, I think he, I think he thinks, and he said this, he, he and the, his staff think that this guy can play top four. It's just a matter of how do you get him there? And mm-hmm. what do you do in the meantime? So, you know, you just, you're trying to win a cup. And you, so you signed Kulak last season because you thought he'd step into the top four and he failed. So they had to bring in Ekholm. And then Kulak comes in the plus and suddenly steps up again and is fantastic. So if you had any thoughts of moving him out in the summer, it's probably gone by now. It's, and so this is a dilemma. It's a good one to have. Um, but I don't I don't know what they're going to do, Bruce. What would you do? What would yeah, be your Bro- solution? Broberg's um, um, trade value wouldn't be very high at the moment because he really hasn't established a whole lot in the NHL level. He's shown flashes. He's had little stretches of play. He had some good results this year when he paired up with Evan Bouchard for a month or so on the third pairing, playing highly sheltered minutes. So you have to ask yourself, how much of that is due to uh, Broberg? How much of it's due to Bouchard? How much of it's due to the highly sheltered minutes? And, you know, there would be a a split in that answer. Uh, You know, in a perfect world, he'd be the guy to go up on the second pairing with Nurse. In a perfect world, if he was ready, that uh, could just say, "Let's, you know, let's just run with him for three months uh, with Nurse." Now we've got uh, we've got uh, Ekholm and presumably Bouchard gets signed. We can lean on them as the top pairing, and we can uh, use uh, uh, Nurse and Bouchard, and you know, uh, uh, slightly less pressure-packed situation, and they, they can develop as a pairing. Now, here's the problem. Uh, Nurse has played nothing but heavy, tough, hardest competition for ever, ever since Woodcroft arrived here. Broberg never plays the hardest, toughest competition. They're always seeming to shelter him. And they sheltered him, it seemed to me, just as much this year as they did last year. And in some ways, I'm quite discouraged that there wasn't much progress. By playoff time, he was an afterthought. Again, uh, I mean, he, he dressed for a few more games because they were going 11-7, but he was playing like four minutes, like Colin said. And so that um, uh, that's very much an open question. And I, I'd like to think that the player has shown something, that he's you know ready to step up and make a statement. But are you willing to bet a spot in the top four on that? I mean, that's where I'd you be- move CC and you say, here's how we create cap space. We replace CC with Broberg. Could you replace CC with Kulak? Like, I mean, you if you don't want to move if you don't want to move uh, Kulak, you can move CC and then right. Broberg's third pairing. Listen, I I think personally Broberg showed enough last year that I'd be comfortable with him going into the year as third pairing defenseman on the left third side. Pairing, yes, and ready to step up. And on the other hand, the Oilers didn't have any injuries to speak of on their defense core last year. They got lucky, super lucky. Very. This is going to sort itself out. Like, if you're a realist, this will sort itself out sooner than later, probably sooner with an injury. 
early in the year to a defenseman, and they're going to be glad they have Broberg to play then 10, 15 minutes a game, and, and he'll get his ice time. And I, and I think that's a realistic scenario. I mean, you could trade either Kulak or CeCe. You'd have their cap space then, and um, that could help solve some problems. Um, but I don't think you want to – I think in the right defensive system – where and I and I do think the Oilers are going to. Move, I'm I'm hearing enough. I think the Oilers are going to be moving more to a, of a zone defense. They're going to move away from the system that they had, and I think CC can thrive in a system where they're where the where it's just a more structured positional way of playing hockey. He, that's the way he plays already, and um, I think he'll do just fine. And, and Nurse will too. I think that the shutdown pairing is going to be considerably better with the new defensive structure. So I don't want to see him moved. I'd like to see that that those guys. And I think Ekholm and Bouchard are going to be really strong too. And Kulak and Deharnay. And then someone's going to get hurt and we're going to be glad that we have Philip Broberg and it won't weigh so much. He'll, Clint, Ken Holland's mind will be, he'll think, yeah, I made the right call not moving anyone. And I, I knew this was the right call because defensemen get injured. Yeah, well, usually they do. Like you say, this year it was exceptionally uh, different in that uh, all of uh, Nurse... And Bouchard and Kulak played 82 games. CeCe played 80. And then the combined pairing of Barry, who played 61, and Ekholm, who played 21 after the trade, they played 82 games. So they only had the sixth defense spot where they either had injuries or a little bit of, you know, Ryan Murray was slotted in there. He got hurt. Uh, DeHarney got banged up when he was in there. But it was always the sixth spot that was they were looking to fill in. And so when Broberg did play, typically it was as number six and or, you know, number seven in a seven man unit. And uh, so, in fact, in some ways, his progress was maybe a little delayed by the lack of injuries, if you want to look at it that way. It, it was. And it's unusual. And it, well, he was the one who got injured mm-hmm. uh, a couple times. Yeah. First, let's move. Uh, there was one final thing. Holland says he wants to go with a 22-man roster, not a 21-man roster. He yeah. wants to give the coach that flexibility. So, so they are going to have, they are going to be building up cap space, um, uh, <laughs> a small amount of cap space, but some amount of cap space that they can use at the end of the year. And I, um, I think the Oilers are really going to be in the market for one or two defensemen and one or two forwards who are willing to take the Derek Ryan kind of contract. Yeah. Holland uh, referred to Derek mm-hmm. Ryan in, in the two-year deal as a real pro, like it's yes. kind of his highest compliment. So I think they're going to be looking for some other real pros. Players, you know, they kind of lacked it on defense last year because Ryan Murray didn't pan out. Um, yeah. He was not up to snuff. And Slater Kukuk was, um, he was out all year. So they're going to, I think they need to sign a couple defensemen. They need better defensive depth. And they need some, they're going to, it's going to be tough because the players that they sign are the pros that they sign in these depth positions are going to be in tough to make the NHL. They're probably going to be spending a large part of the year earning their $800,000, $900,000 in the AHL. Um, and so that kind of, it's it's a limiting factor, I think, on what kind of player is going to take that contract, but they need to find some good players who are willing to do that, um, take that risk of not being on the 22-man roster um, while earning NHL money in the AHL. So one-way deals, you're saying? I, I think little, that's how you'd money. entice them, yeah. is is by um, by that. 
Um, that would, you know, cause, cause otherwise you'd go to some other organization like money talks. And yeah. <laughs> I think that's what they're going to do. Well, that gets expensive yes. for the owner. It does. Paying NHL salaries for guys in the miners. They like to pick their spots there. But I think they got a couple guys down there that are already uh, in that uh, in that category. I'd have to relook at the contracts of guys like yeah. Brad Malone and Greg McKeg and yeah. players like that. That you know, and and uh, uh, anyway, they've got uh, uh, Seth Griffith guys down there that are you know, on NHL contracts at least, and I don't think they're all two ways. And you're right that that would be way more enticing to the player, but that would require an all-in from the manager, or sorry, the owner, to go along with that as a strategy. But Seth Griffith is indeed signed up for one more season. And so is Malone, and so is McKeg. So, and then they have... I'll sign the... Uh, they patented two-year Ken Holland contract. Yes, indeed. Cam Deneen is signed for one more year. Mm -hmm. So um, these are all uh, not really NHL quality players. Maybe Deneen. Let's see how much. Uh, let me see if I can find Maybe. out. Uh, okay. Um, who am I looking at here? Griffith makes $450,000 in the minors. Okay. And um, Malone makes 250000 in the minors. And McKeg makes $250,000 in the minors. And Deneen makes 210000 yeah. So Those are generous uh, AHL It's not full one-way contracts. Any of and them. these are guys, Bruce, that I don't think are really – they're not who I'm talking about, like in terms right. of what the quality of player the Oilers mm -hmm. need. So I think you're going to have to pay more. Now, will Cates mm -hmm. be willing to do that? Well, he's shown the, a proclivity to, to spend what it takes in the past. So he's been an excellent owner in that regard. I think he might. Um, and this is this segues a little bit into Frank Saravalli, who was on Oilers Now and this week and talked about it was kind of a crypt, somewhat cryptic comment because we're not exactly sure what he, he meant, but he's just talking about the need for the Oilers not to be complacent. And just because they got, you know, they gave Vegas the toughest series Vegas got, and it's two years in a row they've been beat by the cup finalists. Saravalli says, like, hold on a second here. He, his quote is, I also think every spring the NHL is littered with teams that think that the, 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 the cup could have been them. And I think my one concern would be that the orders potentially lull themselves into a complacency, um, essentially by because they played Vegas so tough. Um, he says, I don't think the, the orders need seismic changes, but I think to sit back this summer and rest on your laurels of that success of the success that you've had is probably a foolish way to think about it. Um, I'm not saying the orders are, but I think that's the danger in a team that you feel like you had their number for most of the year and fell short in the postseason, but you can fall into that trap. Um, he he talked about the orders needing to make incremental one to five percent changes. I'm not exactly sure. It sounded like he was he he did specify. He was talking about bottom line players and um, third line players. I I think there's a real hole on the Oilers third line center and. Um, they attempted to fill that last year with Nick Bukestad, and I doubt he's going to be back. Right. So the hope will then be Ryan McLeod, 
who actually right. stepped up into that role in the playoffs. I think um, there's at least it's a coin flip whether Ryan McLeod can fill that position in a in a way that can help you win the Stanley Cup, which is not a that's a high bar. Like yeah, I think sure. he could do it on a on an average NHL team, on an okay NHL team. He can play third line center all day long. Can Ryan McLeod play third line center, be one of the core 12 players on the team on a Stanley Cup winner? And I think that's a real question mark. And and I think if the Oilers are going to, if we're talking about not being complacent and grinding away and finding something extra, that's what I would like to see, Bruce, is that a real competition for McLeod at third line center. And if it's not Bugstad, who who would fit into that category if they could bring him back on the right price? But if it's not him, someone else then, who is that kind of classic third line checking center who you can plug in there against Jack Eichel next year in the playoffs and have him hold his own defensively. That to me would be the player they should try to get this summer um, at a bargain contract, which is like, a, which probably, in, you know, that's in the million dollar range, maybe a bit more than that. If, 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 if you need to go a bit higher, your thoughts. Yeah. They can't afford to go a little bit higher yeah. with very many of them, which is why Bukestad is, you know, I mean, he's coming off a 17-goal season where he made 900000 and on Oilers' cap, he was only 450000 Well, no matter who you're replacing him with, you got to find 325000 at least just to get up to the minimum. But Bukestad himself is probably looking for in the $1.5 to even $2 million range with, you know, 30-year-old. Uh, center winger who can take face-offs, kill penalties, right shot, scored 17 goals last year, was a plus player in Arizona and Edmonton. And, you know, he had a strong season. And so he's uh, he hasn't got too many um, big money contracts in his future. In fact, his big one is surely in his past. Uh, but he is going to make seven figures again this year, but I really don't think it's going to be in Edmonton. And there's do you think point. McLeod could do it, Bruce? Do you uh, think he can step up and be like what? It, what I'm well, saying I think he's step. been the three C for uh, much of the time. You know, before Bukestad came, I mean, he had a couple injuries of his own this year. Yeah. Uh, but he was closer to being the three C because coaches didn't really go with uh, McDavid, Drysaddle, Newton, Hopkins all down the middle uh, model at all. So it was usually McLeod on third line. Uh, once in a while, it was McLeod or Shore, you know, that was filling in at center down there. And then once they got Bukestad, it kind of shorted up a little bit. But uh, uh, McLeod is uh, is a guy, and he's due a raise. You know, he worked for seven ninety eight thousand last year. He's got uh, negotiate. He's got Darb rights. He's got uh, uh, you know a little bit more of a of a track record uh, to bargain on. And the figure I'm hearing bandied about for him is two million bucks. I mean, I'd like to think 1.5, but even that's like doubling what uh, what he got last year. And it's just all these incremental increases. That, uh, do you think he can be a center on a Stanley Cup win, a third-line center, part of the core 12 on a Stanley Cup winning team next season? Ooh. Uh, on the right team with the right line mates? Yeah, I think he's, you know, he's improving. He's gotten better. He's got some real sort of strong, solid sort of uh, skills for the prototype 
3C, you know, he can really skate. That's his biggest thing. He's a he's a big fella. He can control the puck. And he just needs to, I think he still needs to harden his game a little bit. And just, he, he was doing it this year in spots. He had some games where he played real tough and other games where he was kind of a spectator. And he needs more of those games where he's real tough. Uh, and, uh, uh, but I do think he's made progress in the, in that area. It's not his natural game. And so he's adding that as he goes. And he's still just really, a, what is he now, 20? Is he 20? 23. Yeah, like he's like the youngest guy on the team, except for, uh, well, he's, he'll, he's older he'll be 24 than by a month. He's 23 and 266 days. Yeah, yeah. According so, to hockey reference. Bruce, I think the answer is yes as well. Mm-hmm. And I think that the I, – I liked – by the end of the year, I liked the checking line of McLeod, Ryan, and Fogel. I thought that has the right potential to be a shutdown line. And I think if the – and again, I'm going to stress this because I have come to really believe this. If the Oilers adopt a, a, a um, sounder structure defensively where the defensemen aren't – wandering all over the D zone and, and just hold the fort in front of the net. That's going to make it easier for the centers, easier for McLeod. Um, they, they're, they're, the structure will be simpler and they will all improve defensively. And I think he was close to being uh, um, an okay defensive center in a checking role last year. He was kind of inconsistent. Um, I also think sometimes young players – who have had some offensive success at other leagues always have it in mind. They want to score goals and be goal scorers. And that's how they're going to get their value and get their worth. So if he can get paid on it, like if he gets a two year deal and they, they make clear his role, he's not going to suffer from Andrew Cogliano. You know, when Cogliano was here, the story was, well, he just wants to be in a, a top six forward and score points. Center. And it was the only center. And it's only after he got traded that he figured it out and he really figured it out, but it took yep. getting traded. I think with Drysaddle, uh, Nugent Hopkins, and McDavid ahead of you at center, it's a pretty clear message what your role might be, and you yeah. you could probably fairly easy easily accept it. So the role is clear. His pecking order on the team is clear. He's got size. He's got speed. He's okay at faceoffs. Um, he's okay defensively. He's just got to bring his game up a little bit more in each area. And the Oilers, in terms of team def- defensive structure, have to bring up their entire game a little bit more. I think if I think that's these aren't huge steps for him to take, for any of for the team to take or for him to take. And I think that both the team and Ryan McLeod can do it. And he can be the leader of the third line that the team needs him to be. But there's a chance it won't happen too. And, and at this point. Um, it's a coin flip, but a coin flip's not that bad of odds. It's not great. So this is why I'd like to see though them cover themselves and bring in someone else in case comes up tails and you have someone else who's then got a one, one quarter chance of mm-hmm. stepping into that role and succeeding. So all your eggs aren't in one basket. Well, I can always bring in Colton Seager on a PTO. I mean, there's going to be some of that kind of stuff, obviously not that exact player, yeah, but Maddie Maholtra still that, that class of player. Yeah. But this is where Holland's, Holland's talking about, you know, we've got work to do. We're challenged, he says. And uh, he's talking about salary cap going up next season, as in 24, 25. But in the upcoming season, it looks like it's only going to go up 
So the first year I was here, the cap was 81.55. Well, actually, four years later, the cap is 83.5. In that time, Yamamoto wants a raise, Poliarvi wants a raise, Bouchard wants a raise, Cloud wants a raise, Skinner wants a raise, Nurse wants a raise. We trade for Ekholm, we sign Hyman, we sign Kane. Things are tight, money is tight, it's a seller cop word, a classic Ken Hall in short sentences repeating a, sort of the major theme of it. But all these players do want raises, and some of them got them last year, and some of them are, are about to get them this year uh, with uh, Bouchard and McLeod being on the top of that list, and of course Skinner, who's already signed for, for this year. But And then later on they asked him about... Uh, being involved in a free agency. And he said, we can't afford four, five, six million dollar contracts. We probably can't even afford a two and a half or three million dollar contract. And that's just the truth. It's a hard truth. And, you know, the people that are angry with Ken Holland, and I spoke to a few of them on the internet last year, or the, last night, with the usual outcome uh, of general intransigence on everybody's part, including Tears my- and blocking? <laughs> Never blocking. <laughs> <laughs> to try and keep it a civilized conversation, but uh, Holland is, uh, you know, I mean, he's painted himself into this corner himself. You could certainly make that case, but the fa- my my case is, well, this is where we are right now. You can relitigate the Darnell Nurse contract until the cows come home. It ain't changing, right? It's signed. It's done. He's here. It's part of the issue of what they're dealing with. And you, you, no matter how mad you want to get at the GM for a contract he committed to two years ago in a very different market than uh, right now, uh, it's not going to change. It's not, you're not just going to magically disappear the guy in his contract like some apparently would like to, to do. And I mean, maybe it is an overpay, and it probably is an overpay, but it's not like an overpay by six or seven million dollars. It's not like a boat anchor uh, contract like Lucic or Neil, where you're paying the guy and he's performing at an entry level. That's not the case here. You know, you've got a six or seven million dollar defenseman, easy, that's making nine million. So, okay, you got to make that up somehow, but blaming the woes of the entire organization on the one contract and the guy who signed it. It's a little simplistic, and it's it also it doesn't solve anything. Like it's there now. Make that case two years ago, before the contract was signed, or four years ago, and I, and some of these guys did, and they were they, they were some of them did. They did right yeah. at the time. We're saying, no, oh, they should sign Nurse now because when he comes to free agency next time, boy, is that going to be expensive? And sure, uh, they were right. And the reason they extended them back then was they were in Sally Cap hell then. It's been a long-term issue with this team, so. I think it was a rough year for Darnell Nurse, Bruce, and I think it was a rough year because they were playing a system which brought out the worst in him. You know, uh, a super aggressive system on defense for mm-hmm. a super, super, super aggressive player. And what did that up to add up to? Darnell Nurse trying to do way too much game in, game out. And it, it accentuated the negative in his game. They, they might have thought, well, we're building a system around what he's really good at being super aggressive and mm-hmm. fast and agile. No, actually, it didn't work out that way. And I, I really put a lot of responsibility on the coaches for, for, for what went wrong defensively this year with the Oilers. And I do expect the coaches to fix that. And, um, yeah, hope, maybe we could even uh, uh, talk to one of the coaches. Maybe they'll deign to talk to us and we can ask them in person. 
uh, what they think about this. That'd be awesome. You did that with uh, a couple of coaches in the past, eh? Playfair I talked to about the PK because right. I was just like trying to figure yeah. out what's going on. Oh, why is this PK so good? Like, this is a little different. But we, we, we would be respectful. I mean, I've interviewed thousands of and thousands of people and athletes and uh, over the years. So, um, yeah, it would be – I'm going to see if they'll agree to it. Like, they don't – you know, the owner's policy – is that they don't give interviews anymore. They don't give interviews to bloggers. Well, what the owners are going to find is, with the mainstream media now disappearing, is everyone's a blogger. Um, you know, um, Jason Greger is going to be a blogger. Um, are they going to give interviews to him and not to the cult of hockey? So I just think they might have to rethink their policy. Right. I'm going to talk to them about it and see what happens. Probably nothing. But it's worth, it's worth asking because uh, it's not like we want to talk to them all the time but now and then i think mm -hmm. it's yeah it would serve their purposes and serve certainly serve us mm -hmm. and our readers and listeners to talk to them so i recall you interviewing billy moore's years ago am i wrong about that yeah he was a and a you know mctavish I, when he was gm mm -hmm. on hockey strategy it's just right. like we we have specific questions right i certainly have certain obsessions that aren't being asked about by other people mm -hmm. like they're not they're not on other people's mind. So sometimes every now and then I just think, geez, I'd really like to talk to these guys and see what they're thinking. And this is one of those moments. So I'll give it a shot. Bruce, let's leave it there. Unless you have anything you want to add. Uh, no, I think that's pretty much all covered. Other than best, best wishes to TSN 1260 personnel, best wishes to Noah Philp. And uh, best wishes to oil fans. These are troubling and trying times. We know our team is close, and yet to some, if you're not the one team on top, it's a failure of a season. And it's a 97% fail rate in the NHL with that logic. But uh, uh, the orders are they're getting there. But it's uh, there's as Ken Holland himself has said many times, there's no guarantees. You just want to be in there with a shot year after year. And we'll see where it goes next year. Indeed. And again, Bruce, thanks for bringing up the TSN people and, and Noah Philip and, to, you know, to everyone struggling. You know, we are the faithful and we are with you. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.